What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. On April 10, 1991, hikers walking through a desert area of Ocotillo in California made a horrific discovery. Buried in a shallow grave, they found the body of a person wrapped up inside a big black bag. They immediately notified authorities who unearthed the remains from where they had been discarded on the side of the road. The desert sun and being wrapped in what was essentially a plastic bag meant the body was severely decomposed and beyond recognition. There were no facial features visible, no skin with a recognizable tattoo, and no fingerprints. All they could tell was that the body was of a young adult female. The case was filed away amongst so many others as a Jane Doe. The truth of what had happened to this particular Jane Doe would only be revealed when a superstar pro skater confessed to the murder. This is Monsters. Mark Rogowski was born on August 10, 1966, in Brooklyn, New York. He was three years old when his parents divorced and he moved with his mother and brother to Escondido, California. Mark had a very middle-class upbringing. He lived in a comfortable house in a pleasant neighborhood, the kind of place where local kids played on the streets long into the warm evenings. But even from a young age, Mark was different from the other kids. He would later be described as a social outcast. He kept to himself and didn't have any friends to speak of, just his older brother who was intelligent and athletic and seemed to have no trouble making friends. Maybe it was Mark's social isolation which eventually attracted him to skateboarding, or maybe it was his innate determination to prove himself. Either way, when Mark was just seven years old, he picked up his first board and taught himself how to fly. To him, vertical skateboarding came naturally. Vert skating is the high-adrenaline, high-risk style of skateboarding where the skater flies high off the top of a ramp and then spins mid-air before landing, or crashing, back down to earth. Mark seemed to have no fear of the ramp or the inevitable falls which resulted in many broken bones and concussions. In fact, these injuries seemed to spur him on and he would push the limits further and further, taking to the half-pipe with his latest broken bone still in a cast. By the time he reached his teenage years in the 70s, skateboarding had become extremely popular. Skateboard parks were being built in every neighborhood, and while the older generation still thought of skating as the type of thing only rebels did, kids admired pro skaters just as they did athletes of other sports. Skate-style clothing was becoming more and more mainstream, and amateur-style videos of aerial skate tricks were sold in the thousands. Before long, skateboarding competitions were being held across the nation with top prizes reaching $5,000 plus, huge money for such an underground sport. To Mark, skating was the one place he felt like he could hold his own. While other kids in the area where he lived were more into surfing and comparing what board or fancy gear they had, 
Mark spent his time at the local halfpipe or bowl. He wasn't worried about what he wore or trying to maintain a reputation. In fact, his favorite clothes were the things he picked from a thrift store for a couple of dollars. Mark had never had a reputation as anything other than odd, so there was no need to try to impress anyone. At the skate park, he found the friends he never had. People just like him who the world thought of as outsiders and screwballs. He could do tricks that no one else had even attempted, and all of a sudden the outcast had become the adored. It was in those amateur days that Mark picked up the nickname Gator based on an aerial trick he invented where he flew feet into the air off of the halfpipe. Gator the Skater took skateboarding to a whole new level. Nothing was off limits and nothing was impossible. He spent hours upon hours carving out new tricks and cheering on others who did the same. By the age of 10, Mark was regularly appearing at and winning local skateboard contests. When he was 14 years old, he was picked up by a sponsor, and in 1982, he won the Canadian Amateur Skateboarding Championships. With that, Mark was ready to go pro. By the time he was 17 years old, the once middle-class kid was bringing in paychecks of 100 grand a year. While some money came from sponsorships and prize money, most was paid as a commission from sales of the Gator-themed skateboards. The Gator skateboards featured a black and white psychedelic design and they were flying off the shelves in the thousands to kids desperate to get a piece of the skate star. With his ruggedly handsome bad boy looks and couldn't care less attitude, girls wanted to be with him and boys wanted to be like him. To all those kids who felt different, Mark was a hero. He swore, he drank, and he didn't give a damn what anyone said about him. He was just there to skate. Gator the Skater was part of a new crowd of skateboarders who brought the underground sport into the mainstream. With money flowing in as he'd never experienced before, Mark began to splurge on cars, parties, a huge house in the desert, and whatever else he wanted. Women threw themselves at him wherever he went. He wore his persona as a bad boy with pride and used it to score dates with women who went on to become household names like Cindy Crawford and Patricia Arquette. By then, Mark was getting free clothes, free skate gear, and free trips all over the world. Everywhere you looked, it was Gator the Skater. On magazines, in promo videos, on posters, and on skateboards. Tony Hawk and Gator were living a rock star lifestyle and Mark was happy to play along. He was regularly interviewed by the skate magazine Thrasher, and it was clear that it wasn't just the halfpipe where Mark went all out. He talked about the thrill of skating and his latest tricks, but the interview also heavily featured stories of drug-fueled parties and endless girls. Mark was known to go the hardest both on the ramp and off. A lot of his antics were relatively harmless, getting drunk and running naked down the street being a theme that featured regularly. But there was also an undercurrent of violence when Mark got drunk or high. He stole from liquor stores and punched a security guard in the face when he was unable to get into an event because he was drunk and arrived late. But Mark never seemed to stay in trouble for long. His reputation got him off the hook in most sticky situations. Plus, the companies that sponsored him couldn't have their star out of action for too long. They needed to keep him on tour to keep ticket sales high. It was on one such tour that Mark met Brandy McLean and Jessica Bergston. One would become his girlfriend, and the other would become his victim. While Mark had plenty of girls throw themselves at him, Brandy was different. With long blonde hair, a petite build, and bright blue eyes, she was picture-perfect, intelligent, and could hold her own. Even from that first meeting, Mark was smitten. 
He began to fly Brandy out to visit him most weekends from her home in Tucson, and after a few months of back and forth, he asked her to move in with him for good. By then, Mark had bought a huge house in the mountains near Tony Hawk's ranch. He built a series of wooden skate ramps with the plan to build a professional-level skate park in the future. From the outset, the couple were inseparable and they were hot property. They were invited to all of the biggest events and Brandy joined him on every tour, no matter how international. They both loved to party. Brandy once commented, quote, We would get high every night. We wouldn't do coke every night, but we'd do bong hits. We'd go to the sandbar at the end of the street and get fucked up. Then we'd hang out in his jacuzzi, get drunk off our asses, and go in and have wild sex all night. Once Brandy became involved in the business, they became unstoppable. Together they modeled for Mark's sponsors and she appeared in his skate promo videos. Mark went to great lengths to make sure Brandy was happy. She never paid a bill and he bought her cars, clothes, and whatever else she wanted. When she got bored of living so far out in the mountains, Mark sold his home and bought an apartment in Carlsbad, one block away from the beach and even more convenient for the partying lifestyle they loved. But like all good things, Mark's time at the top was about to come to an abrupt end. In the late 80s, a new form of skating made its debut. Street skating, or street style, was becoming more and more popular. Street skating is the style of skateboarding most of us are familiar with these days where skaters use benches, rails, curbs, and whatever else they can find to use to perform their tricks on. There was something about this more casual and unpretentious form of skating which appealed to kids who couldn't always access skate parks and ramps or afford the fancy gear that Mark and other pros put their names on. Vert skaters like Mark were no longer commanding as much attention as these literally more down-to-earth skaters. At around the same time, sales of gator boards and merchandise basically stopped and Mark's main sponsor filed for bankruptcy. While other professional vert skaters were facing the same challenges, they chose to pivot from skating to business. Think of Tony Hawk with his video games, or Steve Caballero who released his own line of boarding products. But not Mark. He was desperate to maintain the high-profile life he was accustomed to. Mark tried to adapt to the new style of skating, but he just couldn't seem to master it and he was too drunk or high for anyone to offer him the opportunity to move into business. It seemed like he was hoping that street style would just be a phase which would pass and he would soon return back to the top spot. The few interviews he was asked to do at the time all mentioned the declining interest in vert skating. He was asked what he would do if he couldn't skate anymore, to which he replied, quote, I'd probably have some suicidal tendencies. I'd feel low, cheap. I'd feel like nothing. I couldn't exist. No way. I'd kill myself. Lose my spirit. I'd float away and my carcass would get buried. But instead of taking his own life, Mark decided to take someone else's. On one of Mark's last tours, he traveled to Germany. As per usual, he got wildly drunk and leapt out of a second-story hotel window. He told his friends that he was convinced he could fly, but those on tour with him reckon he fell when he tried to sneak back into his hotel room after hours. No matter the reason, his fall resulted in him landing on a wrought iron fence. He was impaled through his face, neck, and thumb, and it took months of plastic surgery and rehabilitation to fix the damage the fall had caused. When he finally emerged from the hospital, Mark looked the same to his friends, but inside he was very different. Indeed, it appeared that the incident had been a wake-up call for Mark. 
Just before his trip to Germany, Mark met Augie Constantino, a pro surfer who lived just around the corner from Mark and Brandy's condo. Augie had also suffered a similar injury as Mark, which had ended his pro career. Instead of falling into despair, Augie decided the accident was a divine intervention and an opportunity to turn his life around. He stopped his partying ways and instead turned towards God and faith. While Mark was receiving treatment for his injuries, Augie shared his beliefs that this was a sign from God to sort himself out. It seemed to work because when Mark stepped out of the hospital, he spoke for the first time about salvation and redemption. When he returned to skating, he covered his board with religious stickers and preached about the Lord to skaters and surfers. He referred to Jesus as his secret friend and tried to convince others to repent and give their lives to the Christian faith. But he wasn't just mentioning it or suggesting it. He became obsessed with it, fanatical if you will. And it wasn't just those he'd met in the skating world. Mark told Brandy that she needed to convert and that they couldn't have sex anymore until they were married. He took her along to church on a couple of occasions, but Brandy was not interested in what God was offering. She said, quote, We literally had sex five times a day. We were so in love. Then he met Augie and started saying we can't have sex anymore unless we get married. And I'm like, wait a minute. We've been going out for four years, having mad sex for four years, and we can't have sex anymore? I can't deal with this. Later. By then, Mark had become increasingly violent inside the walls of the home they shared. When she wanted to go out, he would lock her in a closet, and when she spoke to anyone else, he would fly into a rage. With his most recent demand that they stop having sex until they got married, Brandy decided that she had had enough. The next day, she moved out. Mark was devastated. On top of facing the loss of his first true love, skating, he had now lost his girlfriend too. While the rejection stung at first, his bitterness was about to turn into violent rage. In his mind, Brandy was nothing without him. She'd been nobody before she met him, and now she had the audacity to decide she didn't want to be with him anymore, and all because he wanted to be a better person through Christ. He was Gator the Skater, and he had given Brandy everything. Mark recognized that his anger was out of control, so he sought some spiritual advice from Augie. But being told Brandy was the problem and he was better off without her did little to calm him down. Instead of working through his feelings in a healthy way or even with the guidance of his faith, the actions Mark took next were decidedly unchristian. Mark began stalking Brandy. He made threatening phone calls to her landline, leaving messages like, quote, You bitch, you cunt, you're gonna fry in hell from your toes. One night, he broke into her home and stole every gift he'd ever given her, including the cars. Brandy reported the break-in to the police, who immediately suspected Mark, but little was done about it, giving it appeared to be a lover's tiff. Before long, Brandy had a new love interest, a local surfer that Mark knew. Mark began leaving threatening messages on his phone as well. Then one night, Mark approached him and threatened him right to his face. Despite telling the police about the threats, once again, there were no consequences for Mark. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For unknown reasons, especially considering his increasingly threatening behavior, Brandy was hopeful that she and Mark would reconcile. One night, she decided to ask Mark out for dinner, but right from the moment he pulled up outside her house, she knew something was wrong. Mark was very angry, and he kept bringing up the surfer that she had been seeing. He started to drive in the opposite direction from where they were meant to be going for dinner, and instead headed far into the desert. In Brandy's own words, quote, He turned to me with this really scary, serious look in his eye. His voice got all deep, and, you know, he sounded like the devil. He says, you know what? I should take you out to the desert right now. I should drive you out right in the middle of the night and beat the shit out of you and leave you there. And I would get away with it because everybody would know that you deserve it. Brandy began to cry and demanded that Mark take her home. The next morning, she decided to get as far away from Mark as she could. She took a flight to New York and told no one where she was going or what had happened, including her best friend Jessica. On March 20, 1991, Jessica Bergsten fatefully entered Mark's arena. Jessica K. Bergsden was born on April 27, 1969 in Florida. On the day that she reconnected with Mark, she was just 22 years old. She had no idea what had happened between Mark and Brandy. So when she began planning a trip to San Diego, she called Mark and asked him if he wouldn't mind showing her around. Jessica was similar to Brandy in many ways. She was beautiful, adventurous, and street smart, and she too had long blonde hair and bright blue eyes. But Jessica was also impulsive and loved to party, often deciding on the spur of the moment to head to a place she had never been before with people she had just met. Mark agreed to show Jessica around San Diego, and the next day he picked her up and showed her some of the sights before they had lunch at an Italian restaurant. Then they went back to Mark's house to watch movies, smoke weed, and drink wine. At some point during the evening, Jessica began looking at the photos on Mark's mantle. Mark took the opportunity to creep up behind her. In his hand, he held a metal bar, the kind used as an anti-theft steering wheel lock. He used it to hit Jessica over the back of the head several times, causing her to fall to the ground. He kept hitting her until she was barely conscious. Blood gushed from her head and soaked right through the carpet into the floorboards underneath. Next, he handcuffed her limp body and dragged her upstairs to his bedroom where he shackled her to his bed and cut her clothes off with scissors. He spent the next three hours committing every form of sexual violation he could. Jessica was in and out of consciousness throughout the attack, and whenever she could, she screamed and attempted to fight Mark off, but it was to no avail. She was completely immobilized and Mark was free to do as he pleased. After a few hours, and perhaps after the effects of the adrenaline and alcohol wore off, Mark began to worry that a neighbor might hear Jessica's screams for help. He removed one of his surfboards from its bag and stuffed Jessica's beaten and bruised body inside. But Jessica wasn't done yet. She begged Mark to let her go, and she told him she couldn't breathe. From outside of the bag, Mark put his hand over her mouth and waited until she stopped breathing and her body went still. There's no doubt that Jessica's final hours were filled with pain, despair, and horror, but the desecration of her body was not over yet. Mark threw the bag containing Jessica's body into the back of his car along with the metal bar, handcuffs, and her cut clothing. 
He drove 100 miles or 160 kilometers out into the hills of Shells Canyon Desert until he found a place so desolate that he figured she would never be found. He dug a shallow grave where he dumped Jessica's body, still wrapped inside the surf bag. On his way home, Mark threw the rest of the evidence out the window. He rented a carpet steamer and cleaned his condo from top to bottom. He flipped his mattress and removed any signs of the horrors that the walls had witnessed. By the time hikers had found her remains 20 days later, the heat of the desert sun had caused Jessica's body to decompose to such a degree that her remains were unidentifiable. All that remained of the once vibrant and adventurous woman was a skeleton in a surfboard bag. Jessica's parents were concerned about her well-being almost from the day she was murdered as she was usually in touch regularly. Her father wasn't satisfied that the San Diego police seemed unconcerned about her whereabouts and so within days of her going missing, he flew from Tucson to San Diego to search for her. He plastered the neighborhood with missing person posters featuring pictures of his 5'8 blonde-haired, blue-eyed daughter. He met with Jessica's friends and unbeknownst to him, he even came face to face with the man who had murdered her. Mark swore he didn't know where Jessica was. Devastatingly, her father's efforts turned up no new leads in the case. There were no witnesses to her disappearance. She was gone without a trace. One of the posters he put up was in the front window of Mark and Augie's favorite pizza joint, but it wasn't the pizza they went there for. It was the opportunity to preach to young skaters and surfers that frequented the spot. And so, day after day, Mark saw a picture of the young woman he had murdered while he told others about the saving grace of God something that most people would think was rather twisted. One night, weeks after the murder, Mark knocked on Augie's door and confessed to what he had done. He told him, quote, Remember that girl in the poster? She was the one I killed. Augie told Mark he had to go to the police and turn himself in, but told him not to worry that the only person he was accountable to was God. The next day, Mark visited the police station and confessed to Jessica's murder. The only thing was, the police didn't have a body to connect to the murder Mark was confessing to. The remains that had been discovered on April 10th were still unidentified due to the level of decomposition. With Mark's confession, the murder was able to be connected to the body in the desert, but officers couldn't understand why Mark would kill Jessica. By all accounts, he was a changed man. He didn't drink or take drugs and he spent his time preaching the gospel to youth. That's when Mark revealed the chilling truth behind his actions. He told investigators that he had killed Jessica because she reminded him of all that he despised about Brandy. She was beautiful, confident, and sensual, everything that he missed since Brandy had left him. Mark drove the police to the area where he had discarded Jessica's body. Of course, by then, her body had been removed, but after digging around, investigators were able to unearth further evidence and photograph the site. Almost immediately, the media jumped on the story. It was sensational that a pro skater with hundreds of thousands of dollars in endorsements had confessed to murder. But not only that, this was a person who claimed to be a born-again Christian long before he carried out the heinous act, and he had continued preaching about Jesus even after the killing. Aside from the grief of losing their daughter under such horrific circumstances, it was Mark's admirers who were the most let down off the back of his actions. Skateboarding already had a bad rep for being a sport of rebels and outcasts. 
The media coverage of the murder claimed skating was as violent as death metal in video games. As a result, skating was further ostracized and many skaters refused to even acknowledge Gator's existence. Meanwhile, forensic investigators pulled Mark's home apart. They found the bloodstains under his carpet and the receipt for the carpet cleaner. He was charged with murder with special circumstances as he had committed the murder during a rape. In California, this charge can carry the death penalty or life in prison without parole. Mark was unable to get a private lawyer to agree to defend him, so he was assigned a public defender. This was a self-described glory seeker by the name of John Jimenez. Despite having made a full confession, John appealed the rape charge and insisted that Jessica's decomposed remains showed no sign of forcible rape. And that's because there was no sign of anything. There was nothing left but a skeleton. While John never attempted to deny Mark had killed Jessica, he decided that the best defense for his client was the most disgusting option available. He blamed Jessica. He told a reporter that her murder was her own fault because she was a slut and she had a long list of people that she'd had sadomasochistic sex with. This list supposedly included the entire University of Arizona basketball team and a handful of pros. Whether this was true or not is irrelevant. Nothing she could have ever done meant she deserved to be raped for hours, murdered, and dumped in the desert. Eventually, when the court refused to throw out the rape charge, Mark agreed to a plea deal where he admitted to first-degree murder and rape. With his guilty plea, he avoided the death penalty and also avoided being sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Almost one full year after Jessica's death, he was sentenced to 31 years in prison six years for the rape, and 25 years for the murder itself. At his sentencing hearing, Mark submitted a four-page written statement. I'm not going to read the whole statement, but in it, Mark attempted to provide an explanation about why he murdered Jessica. He said, quote, I found myself in the midst of some surprisingly strange and almost uncontrollable feelings. All at once, the plague of vile visions and wicked imaginations and the daily battle to suppress them was overwhelming. It's no exaggeration to say I became completely enslaved to these devious mental images and inescapable thoughts. Essentially, I became a victim first because I turned my back on God in several ways, thinking I could get through it on my own power. In his statement, he said that there were three things that led him to murder, saying, quote, Firstly, sex outside of marriage, i.e. promiscuity, premarital sex and cohabitation, the disease of jealousy, and the unhealthy obsession that so often attaches to these. Secondly, pornography and its addictive character, ranging from risque public advertising all the way to hardcore S&M. This dehumanizing of women and men and its dulling of the senses occurs at all levels. Porn is a consuming beast. Thirdly, closing the ears and heart to God's counsel, including partial or non-repentance and disobeying and ignoring the Bible. So people, we must realize without reduction, the gripping strength and deceptive subtlety of sin. What will it take for us to examine ourselves and listen? The tragedy of an innocent young woman's death? The fall of your favorite celebrity? Okay, perhaps the imprisonment of your best friend or relative. I know the Lord forgave me 2,000 years ago on the cross at Calvary, and although I attempt to forgive myself daily, I haven't quite been able to and may never be able to do so. 
Mark attempted to apologize to Jessica's family, who was present in the court by saying, quote, God has changed me, and it was no typical jailhouse conversion. I sincerely hope that they can accept my apology for my carelessness. That's right, he called Jessica's murder carelessness. In response to that comment, Jessica's father shouted, quote, He is a child murderer and child rapist. He is evil incarnate. Cowards die a thousand times and he will die a thousand deaths. He raped her and raped her and raped her and then thought, let's kill her. We couldn't say goodbye to Jessica because that filth left her with nothing but a piece of skin. Left her for the coyotes and the goddamn birds to eat her. I told you, and you remember, Rogowski, what would happen if anyone hurt my daughter. He says he's undergone a religious conversion. Judge, you must have heard that same story a hundred times. If he underwent a religious conversion, it was to evil, degradation, filth, and Satanism. Once in jail, Mark's story changed again. He gave an interview where he claimed that he had been sexually abused since the age of three. He went on to claim that he and Jessica were involved in S&M and that the use of the metal bar which he struck her with was consensual. He denied that he raped her and claims her death was more like involuntary manslaughter, that he would never have killed her if she hadn't tempted him with sex. To add insult to injury, he stated, quote, I don't want to defame Jessica at all. I'm very, very sorry about what happened to her. I just want to make it known that I was led into a sexual situation that I didn't want to have anything to do with. I wouldn't have submitted if I didn't have some weakness, some background desire. That night, I didn't realize what kind of purring feline she was. It's really hard for me to say these things about Jessica. We lost her and I don't feel good about that. I just want to make it known that I was led into a sexual situation that I didn't want to have anything to do with. I was scared I'd be discovered with this wayward woman. In my attempt to quiet her, in her intoxicated and belligerent state, I had put my hand over her mouth to quiet her for a second so I could hear the voices and the footsteps coming up my walkway. She must have suffocated or had a seizure or a stroke or something. The next thing I knew, I looked down and she's not breathing and not moving. It turns out it wasn't his sleazy lawyer who had come up with the idea that Jessica was to blame for her own death. It was Mark all along. Mark's time in jail has been relatively trouble-free. It seems that his pro-skater reputation means that he's been largely left alone and in some cases even adored by his fellow inmates. He spent some of his prison time in a medical facility after being diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Mark applied for parole in 2011 and 2016, but both applications were denied. In 2019, after serving 27 years of his sentence, Mark's application for parole was accepted. However, after a public outcry, California Governor Gavin Newsom overturned the decision stating that Mark, quote, remains an unreasonable risk of danger to society. In June of 2022, after serving 30 years for Jessica's murder, Mark was granted parole with the parole board stating that he was a low risk of danger to the public. Jessica's family have since commented via the district attorney that they are devastated by the decision to release Mark. The family and friends of Jessica Bergston deserve the continued promise of justice in this case. The district attorney's office said, quote, Our office has a responsibility to argue strongly against releasing this violent defendant. We handle hundreds of parole hearings each year, doing our best when it's appropriate to make sure dangerous criminals are not released and crime victims are given a voice. While Gator the Monster doesn't quite have the same ring to it as Gator the Skater, 
there is no doubt that Mark Rogowski is truly a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.